Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Shek. We know that children living in poverty generally tend to do worse academically than middle-class kids. But we also know that even some kids from wealthy backgrounds fail or break down. We've come to learn in part through the writing of my guest, Paul Tuff, that it's more than IQ or just temperament, that there is something else, something that has to do with innate character, perseverance, or just plain old-fashioned grit that has a lot to do with academic success. But are these traits preordained? Are children merely geographically and genetically predisposed to succeed or fail? Or are these attributes of success something that can be multiplied, embedded, and programmed into children in ways to increase the likelihood of success in school and in life? We're going to talk to Paul Tuff about that today. His last book was How Children Succeed. It spent more than a year on the New York Times bestseller list. He's also the author of Whatever It Takes, Jeffrey Canada's Quest to Change Harlem in America. And it is my pleasure to welcome Paul Tuff back to this program to talk about his newest book, Helping Children Succeed, What Works and Why. Paul, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you back here. How much of, of a lot of what you write about in helping children succeed, and, and we'll talk about some of the ways in which some of these kids can be better set up for success, how much of it comes out of more recent research, brain research, academic research, into what works and what doesn't? Uh, some of it is recent. I mean, a lot of the research that I draw on is, is neuroscience research about mm-hmm. the effect of growing up in a stressful environment on kids. Um, and there's some research that has been done just in the last few years. I'd say more it's the last, say, 20 years or so that, that we've come to understand the importance of stress in, in affecting how kids do. Um, and there's other research that has to, the, the other sort of body of research that I draw on in this new book um, has to do with motivation and, and student psychology and what kind of motivational um, strategies and techniques work best for kids. Uh, and some of that research is, is, again, you know, 10 and 20 years old, but some of it is, is sort of newly refined in the last few years. And I guess one of the central questions is the degree to which some of these negative influences and some of these really stressful situations that some of these kids grow up in, the degree to which that can be changed and reversed. Um, it's a great question, and I think there are, there are at least two ways that it can be changed and reversed. I mean, the first way is that it, we, can, we can do a lot to improve children's environments um, in early childhood. Uh, and the tool that we need to, I think, use more than we're using the, right now is, is uh, families, is parents. Um, so right now, low-income parents, uh, parents who are living in poverty, do not get a lot of support and help uh, shaping the environment that their kids are growing up in. And as a result, there are a lot of kids uh, in low-income homes who are growing up in, in environments that are not conducive to their development of, uh, in general, and especially their development of these non-cognitive capacities. Uh, but when parents get the right kind of support and coaching, and one of the, the couple of the uh, um, interventions that I write about include um, home visitors who go into uh, the homes of, of uh, parents who are at risk in some way or another, um, and just support them, give them um, sort of feedback and encouragement to um, create the kind of environment in the home with their interactions with their child that leads to uh, secure attachment, to uh, more of a sense of, of connection and responsiveness. It's not, you know, it, not, not huge changes, but those little changes make a big difference in terms of how kids do. So that, that's an early childhood. But then there's also a lot that we can do later on. So if, if, if kids don't get that kind of support or in early childhood, 
there is a lot that we can do in elementary school, in middle school, um, in high school to change the environment that kids experience in the classroom and make it more conducive for them to feel more motivated, more connected, and thus work harder and do better. How much of this is, is similar to the work that Jeffrey Canada was doing with the Harlem Children's Zone and this kind of holistic approach to dealing with kids in this kind of environment? So the, uh, that's what my first book, book was about, as, as you pointed out. Um, and I'm still very influenced by the work he did and um, and the work that the Harlem Children's Zone is continuing to do. And one of the things that I'd say in this new book, Helping Children Succeed, is that um, that we are making a mistake when we think about ch- we sort of chop childhood up into different uh, sections and, and, and periods. And we, we don't in terms of the, the way that governments and philanthropies and society as a whole tries to help kids, we tend to think of early childhood as one uh, category and K-12 education as another and, you know, after school as something else. And in fact, children are experiencing childhood as this continuum, right? There isn't a big difference between what life is like as a four-year-old and what life is like as a five-year-old. Uh, and yet in terms of, you know, uh, what's happening in Washington, D.C., you're, you're, the responsibility goes from one department to another uh, at the, on the first day of kindergarten. Uh, and I think Jeffrey Canada really was um, a, a leader in understanding that. Uh, and his the, one of the principles behind the Harlem Children's Zone is that if we want to help kids growing up in poverty to succeed, we need to find ways to support them all along that, that pipeline, starting at birth, sometimes before birth, and continuing right up through college. Of course, one of the difficulties in this is in many cases the parents of these children are experiencing their own stress, their own situations that make it very difficult for them to provide and help provide the kind of environment we've been talking about. Exactly. I mean, being a parent is, is always a challenge, I think, but especially when, when uh, parents are um, experiencing all of the stresses that come along with uh, poverty, uh, it's a lot harder to provide the kind of environment in the home, that, that you know, warm, responsive, connected environment that we now know uh, and, and we have intuitively known for a long time, I think, is so conducive to children's best development. Um, what I think is so exciting about this research is that while it is difficult and while I think it is often a real um, challenge for parents in poverty to provide those kinds of environments, it, it's absolutely possible. Um, and what these home visiting programs show is that giving parents you know, the right kind of support, the right kind of um, help and encouragement through home visiting uh, really changes the, the dynamic in the home. It changes the, the, the way that they deal with their kids, and, and thus it changes the children as well uh, in, in very positive ways. And, and that, to me, is this message that, you know, while it would be great to have, you know, lots of good, perfect educational toys and books in every home, um, that's not actually the key ingredient. The key ingredient is about the relationship between uh, parents and children and ad- other adults and children, and that is something that um, that can happen, that change can happen in, in any home. The things that you talk about in helping children succeed, many of these things are small steps. The face-to-face time, the kind of bonding with the kids, these are things that can happen in small incremental steps and, and have a large impact. 
Absolutely, and I think you know. I think one of the. I think we can often feel daunted by the, the challenges of kids who are growing up in disadvantage. It just seems like they have they face so many disadvantages. There's so much that they don't have um, that we you know we we can't do anything. So why try, right? And what what I think this research suggests is that actually what makes the biggest difference in um, the the development of kids is those little little moments that can come for free. You know those little moments of of singing nursery rhymes of back and forth sitting on the on the floor you know staring back and forth between a baby and a parent um I've got a one-year-old, so I'm doing that stuff all the time these days. Uh, and it's, it, there's something I think really reassuring for parents to know, like at this moment where I'm, you know, singing "Twinkle Twinkle Little Star," there's nothing I could be doing that is more helpful to that child's development. I'm like the perfect parent right right now. Um, there's no, you know, I don't need to buy a bunch of toys. I don't need to, you know, uh, get him any tutors. Just this back and forth is what is helping to to grow his brain and to develop him in these uh, non-cognitive capacities. And that's something, yeah, that, that those little moments happen all through the day, and they happen all through a child's life as well. How much of it has to do, though, with the predisposition, the genetic makeup of the child, that some will respond to this more thoroughly, more instantly, more immediately, and others not so much? Uh, not much of it, I, th- I would say. I mean, uh, certainly there there are uh, genetic differences between individuals, uh, and that makes a difference in terms of, of the kid's capacity to succeed in life. Uh, but especially for disadvantaged kids, that is that's just not the obstacle for them, you know, when you see those, those differences much more at the high end, you know, when you have two kids who both are growing up in completely um, uh, advantaged circumstances, um, they, the the distinction between how well they do say in school or anywhere else uh, does often have a genetic component to it. Um, When you were talking about kids who are disadvantaged, who are living in really difficult environments, those distinctions, those genetic distinctions, um, are, are much less apparent because they are—they're not able to achieve their potential because of the environment in which they're in. Um, and so, so to my mind, you know, focusing on those genetic distinctions is mostly not helpful because uh, there is so much more that we can do to get kids to that that fullest potential of their genetic uh, abilities. Uh, once we get, you know, once we get all those kids there, then we can start talking about how those distinctions, what those distinctions look like. But right now, there are millions of kids who are not being able to achieve up to their genetic potential simply because we haven't provided the environments for them that's, that are, are going to allow them to do that. Is there a way that we can measure all of this, or do we do a disservice to the whole process by thinking about this aspect of it in terms of metrics? Well, that's a great question. It's one that I, I wrestle with a lot in helping children succeed. So after um, I wrote How Children Succeed, which was about this this set of non-cognitive capacities, things like grit, curiosity, and conscientiousness, and self-control, um, I, I wrote about all this emerging evidence at the time that these qualities were really important in children's lives. Um, but what I think a lot of educators were finding already and certainly found after my book came out is that, you know, we don't really know how to, how to measure these things. We don't even really know how to teach them. Um, and so I think that has led over the past few years to a lot of frustration. Like you're telling us, teachers say, you're telling us that grit is really important, but you're not telling us what to do about it or even how to tell if, if what I'm doing is helping. And so the frame that I'm trying to steer people toward with this new book, Helping Children Succeed, is toward thinking about these these qualities in children 
not as the kind of skills that you can teach in an academic context, the way you teach math and reading, uh, but instead as products of children's environment. And what we as the adults in their lives can control is that environment, whether we're teachers or parents or uh, childcare workers or you know, citizens or policymakers, there is a whole lot that we can do to create environments where kids uh, are more likely to develop in these non-cognitive uh, capacities. And and at that point, I feel like measuring them, putting numbers on them, saying what your self-control number is and what your perseverance number is, that's not really what's important. What's important is changing those environments. And so the fact that we don't have specific measures for these things, I feel like um, is less of a problem once we decide to let go of that, that focus on measurement and assessment. Is this something that needs to be done or must be done in combination with the school and with the academic environment, or can it be done in some way separately by different people, different individuals, different organizations? Uh, it can be done outside of the context of schools. I mean, certainly in early childhood, that that's a place where parents have an enormous amount of um, uh, potential impact on their children's development. I think you know, great having kids and be enrolled in great after-school programs and and um, weekend programs and summer programs, all of that really helps and can help. Uh, there are lots of lots of young people and older people as well that can point to a specific you know uh, mentor or coach that they connected with who helped them uh, feel more of a sense of connection and and perseverance. That said, I think our most powerful um, uh, instrument in 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 our society to help kids is public schools, right? Is our schools? This is where they spend a ton of time between age five and age eighteen. And so, I don't think that any strategy that just says like, "Well, let's just not worry about what's going on in school and focus on everything else," that doesn't seem like a particularly uh, sound strategy to me. I think um, at the same time, I don't think we should, we can only put it on the schools and just say like, "Let's let's just do all of our work there." Um, um, but I think ignoring ignoring what's happening in schools uh, seems counterproductive. Is in your research is there a kind of universal buy-in among educators that these things work? That the things we're talking about really do make a profound difference? Uh, no, <laughs> I'd say there isn't yet. Um, you know, I I think that there is. You know, we've come out of this. I, I think we're coming out of this period. Uh, of the last 15 years or so that has been very focused on, um, you know, from, from starting in Washington, D.C., very focused on uh, what I perceive to be a pretty narrow uh, approach to education and to teaching, that, that the only thing that matters is children's test scores, that we can measure whether a child is succeeding, whether a teacher is succeeding, whether a school is succeeding, based only on those test scores, and where, you know, the pedagogy that matters is just whatever gets those test scores as high as possible, as quickly as possible. Uh, and while those tests do matter, and while accountability does matter, that has also led to this very, um, I think, uh, sort of narrow kind of teaching that's happened, that's increasingly happening in a lot of schools, um, where where we're not focusing on kids' non-cognitive development, we're not focusing on what kind of environmental factors can make it easier for them to persevere, can make them feel more motivated to succeed, not just on next week's test, but in a deeper way and in the longer term. And so I think we're talking, what, what I'm proposing in helping children succeed is, is a pretty big sea change in terms of, of how we're thinking about education. That said, I do think that there is something instinctive about a lot of this, uh, a lot of these ideas for a lot of educators. I think educators know that kids, um, uh, that their motivation is very much responsive to, uh, to the environment that they create in the classroom. And so my hope is that the kind of specific strategies and ideas that I write about here will uh, give 
uh, teachers not only some ideas and strategies, but also sort of give them permission um, to teach, I think, in many ways, in a way that is more instinctive for them, mm-hmm. um, where they're not focused just on test scores, but instead are focused on um, giving kids the kind of challenges, the kind of um, uh, projects, the kind of connection, the kind of education that is going to help them not only in this non-cognitive realm, but also academically. In thinking about what has to happen in the home, coming back to some of the things we talked about before in terms of some of that bonding, that positive face-to-face time, etc., is this a zero-sum game? Can those things happen even within a stressful environment where the stressors really can't be removed from the parents, from the home situation, from that environment, but these are layered on top of that? Can this still be successful in that framework? Yes. Um, you know, it's an additional challenge. And, and I think the, one of the most important things we can do for kids is to, is to remove them from those stressors or rather remove those stressors from them and make their environments less stressful. But that said, even within contexts where kids are experiencing a lot of stress, what neuroscience, the neuroscience research has been very clear that when kids are, are experiencing that stress but also have a uh, connected, responsive um, relationship with a parent or another caregiver, what psychologists call a secure attachment, that stress has a, a diminished effect on them. Um, they, they don't have the same kind of sort of neurochemical changes that we see in, in super stressed out uh, kids. Uh, when they don't have that kind of connection. So um, while I don't want to say like, oh, you know, let's not worry about changing things in kids' environment, let's only worry about their parents, it is remarkable in the research how powerful that bond between a parent and a child is in protecting them from even the most stressful environments. How important is it for teachers and educators to understand what's going on in the homes of particular kids, that they understand that these stressors are at play and that these interventions, even when they're successfully being done, that these interventions are taking place? Uh, I think it's important for teachers to understand, I don't think they need to know, you know everything about every child, but I think they, it, it's important and useful for them to know the, the science more broadly, to understand how, you know, the, 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 again, the neurochemical effects of growing up in a stressful environment. Um, because I think, you know, in, uh, any, any teacher who is teaching a lot of kids who are growing up in, in adversity knows this, that, that those kids often have trouble in the classroom uh, focusing, calming down, um, you know, following directions, dealing with provocations, dealing with confrontations, dealing with criticism, all the things that we ask kids to do every day starting, you know, in kindergarten. And I think that if you're a teacher and you're, you're faced with students who are struggling in those sort of self-regulatory dimensions, um, it's easy to take it personally, you know, to sort of say like, oh, this kid just, you know, is a behavior problem or doesn't care about school or, um, you know, doesn't have enough grit. Uh, it's easy to blame the kid. And it is frustrating, absolutely. But I think when you understand the science, when you understand that the reason that, that kids are acting that way is because they are struggling with, uh, with self-regulation and that that is a natural response to uh, growing up in a really stressful environment and that there are things that you as a teacher can do to change the environment, to make it easier for kids to develop those self-regulatory capacities, you change your teaching. You know, you no longer are blaming the child and just saying like you're writing them off. Instead, you're saying, well, there's a lot that I can do to help this child do better in my classroom. And, and, you know, it's my job to do those things. So, so I do think that understanding that science can be really helpful and even transformative for teachers. Because a lot of it has to do with the child having a sense of safety, of feeling safe, both, both at home and in the classroom. 
Yeah, and even when, I mean, certainly, again, it's important for them to feel a sense of safety uh, at home, but even when they don't, even when they're, they're, they're existing in sort of threatening environments outside of school, when they can feel a sense of trust and belonging and security in school, um, that, that, again, that can be transformative for them. It can really make them feel uh, like, here's a place where I belong. And that, that sense of sort of trust and security makes it easier for them to learn. Um, and, in, and without it, it's, it's very difficult to learn. Uh, it's very difficult for kids who are, are experiencing that kind of, you know, fight or flight response when they're sitting in a classroom to learn, you know, the Pythagorean theorem or the, you know, the, the history of the Revolutionary War. It's only once kids are feeling like, I belong here, I'm safe, um, I trust the people around me, that they can really start to learn. Where are we seeing this work besides the Harlem Children's Zone that we talked about before? Where are we seeing this really beginning to take hold and work right now? Uh, I think it's happening in lots of different places, and I, I write about a few examples in the book. So I write about some early childhood programs that are working um, in a uh, doing home visiting with parents to try to help them change the environment. I write about some early childhood programs that are center-based, like this program called Educare that gives this uh, really excellent um, education starting um, earlier than a year and going all the way up through kindergarten um, to, to help deeply disadvantaged kids uh, be ready for kindergarten. And then I write about a few different um, uh, K-12 programs, programs in traditional public schools that are trying to change the environment in the school through two things. One, through a sen- giving kids a sense of belonging um, by giving them you know, discussion groups, by thinking about the messages that they give kids so that they do feel that sense of belonging and security when they get to school. And then the other uh, toolbox that some of these, these educational programs that I write about use is actually giving kids challenging work. Um, and I think that's often not our instinct when we think about kids who are growing up in adversity uh, or poverty. Um, we, you know, w- what we often tend to do, because those kids do fall behind, is give them remedial work and just say, you know, just do this simple worksheet and then you'll feel better about yourself. And in fact, what, what the researchers and motivation are finding is that the opposite is true that when kids are just you know, tracked into the, the lower performing um, tracks and given the message that they can't succeed at a high level, that no, not only is disadvantaging them in terms of uh, they're just not learning the stuff that they need to learn to succeed in the world, but it also is sending them this psychological message that they're, you know, they're outsiders. They're not uh, capable of what other students are capable of, and that has a profound impact on children. And when instead they're given, you know, really interesting, challenging, uh, uh, rigorous work, um, you know, when they're asked to take on projects, work in groups, uh, revise work over and over again instead of just doing that day's worksheet, a series of of techniques that some people are calling deeper learning, um, that has this huge effect on them, not only, again, academically, in that they're learning more complex material that they're going to need in the world, but it also has this psychological effect. It gives them this message that I can struggle through challenge. I can try something that seems impossible and get the right sort of support and accomplish it. And if I can do that in math class or in history class, I can do that anywhere. Uh, and so, so a lot of the programs, again, I'm, so I'm talking about a lot of different types of programs um, that I think have to be woven together into a whole the way that, that Jeffrey Canada does. Um, but in school, I think there are a, a number of programs that are taking a very different approach to education and particularly to educating uh, low-income kids that are having remarkable success with them. 
One of the points about this, though, is that even though we've been talking about it in terms of at-risk kids, disadvantaged kids, low-income kids, that that all of these methods, that all of this has relevance across the board for middle-class and wealthy kids as well in terms of their educational outcomes. For sure, yeah. So, and, and I mean, in How Children Succeed, I wrote a lot about um, uh, middle-class mm-hmm. kids and, and even, well, you know, affluent kids uh, and the particular challenges that they often have in this non-cognitive dimension in terms of, you know, perseverance and self-control. Um, but I think, so in helping children succeed, I'm more focused on low-income kids and what we need to do to help them succeed. But absolutely, so many of these principles are still uh, hold true for kids who are growing up in relative privilege. Uh, so I have two sons, one one-year-old and one six-year-old. Um, and over the last year and a half as I've been working on this book, I've been thinking about all of this research in the context of their uh, upbringing. Um, and so absolutely in terms of, you know, in early childhood, I've been thinking a lot about this now toddler and, and what kind of, you know, help and support he needs, uh, what kind of face-to-face serve and return parenting he needs. And then with my um, older son, who is now in just finishing first grade, uh, you know, uh, I've experienced firsthand how a lot of the work that kids get, no matter what income bracket they're in, in school, can be, you know, sort of repetitive and not challenging, uh, and what that does to kids' um, psychology, and that when they're given work that is more challenging and more interesting and, and deeper, um, they respond very differently, not, again, not only academically, but psychologically as well. They feel motivated. Uh, and so I think the ch- some of the changes that I'm talking about in the book have to happen not just uh, for low-income kids, but has to have to happen in terms of how we're educating children in general in schools all across the country. Paul Tuff, his newest book is Helping Children Succeed, What Works and Why. Paul, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks very much. Enjoyed it. Thank you.